Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us for our new series, There's an App for That. We'll be led to discover some very practical applications that God gives us to make our lives more meaningful so that we can be better individuals. Today, Lead Pastor David Fossil helps us see how forgiveness is one of the keys that we need to apply to our lives. Easter Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and ACDC. It doesn't get any better than that. Wow. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, page 695. Matthew chapter 18, page 695. You know, one of the things that I enjoy about my iPhone is all the different apps that you can get on it, right? You get apps for, uh, that are just entertaining to you. You got games or sports scores or things like that. You've got apps that'll inform you, tell you about restaurants and about movies and about the price of homes that are on sale, so on and so forth. You'll have apps that inform you and give you information and newspapers and so on and so forth. You have apps that make your life easier, help you organize and so on and so forth. All kinds of different apps. You'll see this morning on the screen we're starting a brand new series called There's an App for That. And there really is. Apps are a multi-billion dollar industry. If there's something you want or you would like as an application on your phone, it's probably already been created, right? Now, this morning you'll see, though, however, we're not going to be going to uh, Apple's App Store. Instead, we're going to be looking at Discover Apps for a Better You. And we're going to be going to God's Word for the next three to four weeks and looking at some very practical applications that God gives to each and every one of us so that our lives would be more meaningful and so that we would be better individuals. Our first one is found in Matthew chapter 18. Now, by the way, first service, a couple people saw that I had my phone on me and were texting me during the service, so my pants were buzzing the whole service. Don't be texting me. Let the pastor do what he's supposed to be doing. Matthew chapter 18. I do not have the verses on the screen. Uh, That's one of the reasons I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. Uh, But you should be able to follow along. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21, is where we're going to be. And it's entitled, The Parable or the Story of the Unmerciful Servant. Okay? Here's what it says. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, this is Peter trying to show off. Um, The reason we know that is because in those days, the religious law stated that you were supposed to forgive someone three times. If you forgive them three times, on the fourth time, you could get even with them. That's literally what it taught, okay? So Peter saying, well, how about me? I'll, I'll do seven times. I'm like a spiritual stud, right? And well, no, not so quick, says Jesus. Verse 20 through 22, Jesus answered, no. I tell you not seven times, but 77 times you're supposed to forgive someone. Now, you need to understand right away that this isn't, this isn't Jesus giving an exact number on how many times you're supposed to forgive, and then on number 78, you don't have to forgive anymore. This isn't like going to the sandwich shop, and every time you go, they, you know, they punch your card, and when you get to 78, then you're done, right? It's not like that. He's talking about a habit. The habit of learning to forgive, and if you do that, your life will be fundamentally different. And he basically says, okay, let let me help you understand how this works. And he breaks down for us what is going to be our first app in this series, this idea of forgiveness. He tells his story, verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king, wanted to settle accounts with his servants, so he began the settlement, and a man owed him 10,000 talents. We'll talk about how much that is here in a moment. Uh, Owed him 10,000 talents, and he was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, his children, 
and all that he sold, uh, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But then, uh, but when the servant went out, he found one of his other fellow servants and friends who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Verse 29 now is the exact same thing that he said to the king just, let's say, an hour earlier. His fellow friend and servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw all this that had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master, the king, everything that had happened. When the king called the servant in, he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. My guess is that most of us don't recognize this individual right here. Let's put him on the screen. That is Walter Bonetti. Walter Bonetti is arguably the greatest mountain climber that has ever lived, okay? But his life is surrounded by controversy. It is known in the, in the climbing world as the K2 controversy. And here's the controversy. When he was 24 years old, even at a very early age, he very, very quickly became the be- considered to be the best climber ever. At age 24, 1954, he was part of a team sent from the Italian Al- Alpine Club to climb K2. Now, if you have not heard about K2, K2 is the second largest mountain after Mount Everest, okay? It's an incredibly dangerous mountain to climb. For every four individuals who reach the summit, one person dies trying. Very, very dangerous. Well, they were climbing, and uh, as, as the story is told, half of them made it to the summit. Half of them got all the glory as the first Italians ever make it to the summit of K2. And the other half of the team did not make it. They were left halfway down the mountain. Uh, in fact, some of them almost died. It was very, very bad. When they got back to Italy, Walter Benetti accused the guys that got to the summit of leaving his team behind, of leaving the rest of them behind. And the guys that went to the summit said, that's crazy. We would never do that. Why would we do that? So this big controversy began. Walter Benetti was so upset that from that day forward, in many instances, he would climb alone. Which, if you know anything about mountain climbing, it is incredibly dangerous to do that. And for all these years, this controversy has existed between what's called the K2 controversy. In fact, Law & Order made a, made a show about this story at one point in time. It's that big of a deal. Until 50 years later. In 2004, just a few years before Walter Bernetti actually passed away, one of the members that had reached the summit told the entire world that, in fact, Walter Benetti's story was true, that they had left them behind, that they had intentionally tricked them. Well, of course, this made him even more upset and even more disappointed that for 50 years, this controversy had, had survived, and they hadn't even made any attempt to apologize or make things right. In the book that Walter Benetti writes, called The Mountains of Life, he says this. Let me show you. My greatest life disappointments came from people not from mountains. Indeed, forgiving others can be more difficult than climbing the world's tallest mountains. 
I'm here to tell you this morning that that in fact is true. Forgiveness, the act of forgiveness is a very, very difficult thing to do if you're going to do it correctly. But it is critically important, and that's the point of Matthew 18. It is critically important as as a positive thing in your life if you want to have a healthy life. If you really want to become everything God wants you to become, this thing called forgiveness must be a part of who you are. And that's what this story is about. Now, there's two components to forgiveness that we're going to discuss this morning. The first one, if you're jotting down notes, is the idea that you and I need to ask or seek forgiveness. We need to ask or seek forgiveness. And that's really the first scene. So the first scene, let's make sure we understand. It's about a king, okay? And he calls as an accountant. And he says, let's do an audit of the books. Let's find out who owes money. And whoever is overdue, let's, let's call it in, right? You know, show me the money. And they find this one guy that owes 10,000 talents. Now, that means nothing to us because we don't understand what that currency is. What is 10,000 talents? Well, let me give you some context. We know from historical records that the entire revenue for the entire country of Palestine during that period was 600 talents. So the entire tax revenue for the entire country is 600 talents. This one individual owes 10,000 talents. It's a massive amount of debt. Massive amount. Someone has calculated that the amount that he owes is equivalent of 20,000 years worth of earnings. Uh, We don't know how he got in in so much in debt. Maybe he he invested in real estate or the dot-com businesses before they tanked. We don't know. But he owes this massive amount of money. And the king says, pay up. Pay up. And this man gets to the point where he does all he can do. He falls at the king's feet. He begs him and he pleads with him and he basically, he throws up a Hail Mary and says, please, be patient with me. I'll I'll pay it back, which is not really a realistic statement. He's just saying it in desperation. The king has basically said, no, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell you, your wife, your children. We're going to liquidate all you have and that's going to become mine. Seems kind of harsh, but that what was done in those days if you owed money. And this guy pleads for his life. He pleads for his family and his kid's life. Please don't do that. And then the very next verse, in verse 27, the whole story is turned on its head. Because the king, he doesn't come up with a payment plan. He doesn't come up with a 25% discount. He doesn't suggest, okay, here's what you're going to do. You need to get a second job. Or how about you come to the palace on the weekends and work on the shrubs and we'll knock some of... He doesn't come up with any of that. No. In verse 27, it says that that he, he, he has pity on him. He has compassion for the man and he cancels the debt. He erases the debt. It's, you don't have to pay it anymore. Now, let's just make sure we understand something because it's amazing to me how few of us actually understand one concept in the real economic world. Here's the point. You do know when we default on a loan, when we declare bankruptcy, those bills don't just magically disappear. You do know that, right? No, someone always pays. Someone always pays. Now, sometimes it's the bank, sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's whoever co-signed for you on the car, sometimes it's mom and dad that pick up the tab, but when we default on a loan and declare bankruptcy, someone always pays. And the same is true in this story. Who pays in this story? The king pays. The king picks up the tab. The The king who is owed this money basically says, you know what? 
I'll, I'll take care of it. You don't, maybe, you know, you ordered some subcontractors. Or I'll take care of it all. You don't have to pay up anymore. Now, this is very important. At this point in time, you have to revert back to the beginning of the story, and you have to remember what this story is all about. This is not a story about money. This is a story about sin. And this is not the story of an imaginary official that owes close to $250 million to someone. This is a story of the human race. The story of you and of me who have a massive moral debt that we owe to a perfect and holy God. An amount of debt so big that you and I can never and will never be able to pay up. You say, well, how, how did I get that debt? Easy. Every time we're angry or we have greed, lust, pride, laziness, envy, or selfishness in our life, every time we do that, cha-ching, 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 the amount we owe God goes up. And, and, then, and then we steal and we cuss, we get drunk, we cheat, we lie, and we covet. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. We owe more and more and more to a holy God. We are that servant in the story. We are the one that owes what we could never ever pay back. One of my favorite uh, preachers that, I, that I have, I've heard of and studied in the past is a guy called Billy Sunday. He, he's in, in the history of the United States, especially a couple hundred years ago, there were these fiery preachers that would go into towns and they would have these tent revivals on the weekend, but they would arrive like on a Wednesday and they would set everything up and, and, and then they'd have these revival meetings on the weekend. Well, the story is told of Billy Sunday. He goes to this one town and um, he's setting up, and while he's setting up, he sends the mayor a message, and he asks the mayor if he could have the names of people in town that have spiritual problems and have spiritual needs and need help. Interestingly enough, the mayor responded to him by giving Billy Sunday a copy of the town's phone book. Everybody's got problems. Everybody has issues. None of us escapes the massive moral debt that we have, none of us do. Now, some of us are thinking, this is a weird story to be talking about on Easter Sunday. No, not really. This is what Easter Sunday is all about. It's the story of each and every one of us who owe God something there's no way we can repay. There's no way we can repay it other than the Easter story. That's the only way we can repay it. Let me show you what Colossians says. Let's put it up on the screen. Colossians chapter 2. He has forgiven all your sins. He has utterly wiped out the evidence of broken commandments which always hung over our heads. And he has completely annulled it by nailing it to the cross. That is the Easter story. The story of you and I having a massive moral debt that we cannot pay. And God says, you know what? I'm going to come up with a new debt management plan. And here's my plan. You owe, I pay. It's called the economy of grace. That's why when you really understand grace, you realize how little you and I really deserve the love and the forgiveness of God. It's because we owed so much. Now, let's make this real practical. For this to work in your life, you've got to seek forgiveness. So just take a moment and let the last week, last month, last six months go through your mind and think about what you've done, what you've said, and the thoughts you've had. Have you followed through and asked for forgiveness in those instances where you were wrong? Start with God. Have you done that? How about people? Your spouse, your ex-spouse, your parents, your kids, your classmates, your friends, your co-workers, people that sit around you in church on Sunday morning. 
You know what you did was wrong. You know what you said was wrong. But instead of going to them and apologizing and say, you know, I, I, I want to ask your forgiveness, it's so much easier for us to just sweep it underneath the carpet, pretend it didn't happen, and just go on with our life. And I'm here to tell you that's not how it works in God's world. If you really want to have the kind of life that he wants for you, you have to seek forgiveness. You have to seek it. But that's just half of the app. The other half comes in the second part of the story where you need to receive or you need to give forgiveness. You need to give forgiveness. Verse 28 gives us scene number two. So this this one guy has just been forgiven $200 million worth of debt, okay? He leaves the palace. He bumps into one of his friends. It says in verse 26 that owes 100 denarii. How much is 100 denarii? 100 denarii is the equivalent of 20 bucks, so let's think. He just got forgiven $250 million. He runs into a friend that owes him 20 bucks. The friend says to him in verse 29 the exact same thing that he just got done saying to the king. Be patient with me. I will pay you back. He begged. But this guy says, no, the law is the law. You owe me money. He has him imprisoned, And then it says and adds, until he could pay the debt, which makes absolutely no sense because if you want someone to pay you a debt, you need them to be working. And if they're, not, if they're in prison, they can't be working. He doesn't want the debt repaid. He wants to get even with this guy. That's what he wants. Now, here's where you have to start to connect the dots. Just think real quickly. In this story, who does the king represent? Who does the master represent? That's God. That's that's God in the story. He's the king. He's the master. So, next question. Who does the servant represent? Who is the individual that just got forgiven this massive amount of debt but is unwilling to forgive someone else? Who is that person in the story? That's me. That's you. Willing to accept God's forgiveness, unwilling to forgive someone else. You You know that, Dave? That's just not fair. Because you don't know. You don't know what happened to me. You don't know what my mom and dad did to me. You don't know what my ex-spouse did to me. You don't know what that company did to me. You don't know what those friends did to me. And you're right. I don't know. But I do know what God says. You know what he says? Here's what he says. How dare you? Who do you think you are? You receive my forgiveness. You enjoy my forgiveness. But at a massive amount that you are never going to be able to, to repay. You take that. But then in comparison, when someone needs or seeks forgiveness from you, you are unwilling to give it. Who do you think you are? And I'm just telling you, I'm going to use this word on purpose. He gets pissed. That's what it says in this chapter. He gets so upset. He gets violently angry. Can you imagine God angry at us? Why? Because we're unwilling to offer forgiveness after he's forgiven us so much. Is God saying that what that person did to us is no big deal? No, he's not saying that at all. Is he saying that it shouldn't hurt? He's not saying that either. All he's saying is in comparison. In comparison to everything he's forgiven you. In comparison What that other person needs with respect to forgiveness of you is so small compared to what you've been forgiven. That's what he's saying. Part of our problem is our unwillingness to forgive is we don't understand what it means. 
We, we, we distort what real forgiveness is. Let me give you some things that forgiveness is not, okay? Forgiveness is not minimizing the offense. Have you ever had someone come to you and say, I am so sorry I did that, I said that, or will you please forgive me? And then we say, no worries, don't worry about it, no big deal. Have you ever said that? Why? Why do we say that? If it was a big deal, why do we, quote, let them off the hook like it wasn't a big deal? Don't say that. Forgiveness is not you pretending it didn't hurt. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not resuming the relationship without changes. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, you know, I said I was sorry. I don't know why things can't go back to the way they were before. Because you messed up. Things, in some cases, will never go back to the way they were before. Forgiveness does not mean that everything goes back to, quote, normal. Doesn't mean that at all. Forgiveness is not fair, it's not natural, and it's not easy. So if you're struggling with this, you're on the right track with the rest of us. Forgiveness is not based upon my feelings, it is based upon God's expectations. This is what forgiveness is. God says, here's what you need to do. You release your pain to me. You release the need that you have to get even in this situation, and you say, God, I'm going to let you take care of it. When you bump into this person, when you see them, you treat them with kindness and respect. Okay? And then, the last part of forgiveness is you wish them well with God. That's forgiveness. You release your pain to God, you show them respect, and you wish them well with God. That's forgiveness. And you can do that. You need to do that for your own health. The problem is, some of us, we've got issues that keep us from wanting to do this. Here, let me give you some forgiveness barriers. One is revenge. Revenge. It's like this lady who goes to the doctor and the doctor says, I've got really bad news. You've got a severe case of rabies. And uh, he says, you know, let me step out for a minute. And she leaves for a minute. He, he comes back in and she's frantically writing on a piece of paper. And the doctor says, what are you doing? Are you writing your last will out? She says, no, I'm writing a list of people that I want to bite. <laughs> but isn't that how some of us are? Some of you, that's all you're going to remember. Oh, I like that one. We want to get even with people. They hurt us, I'm going to hurt you. We all know how to play that game. Some of us, it's resentment. You, you know how this is, right? You know how it feels in the pit of your stomach. It ticks you off, especially if they don't think or know that you, they hurt you. That bothers us even more. Or the last one is remembering. We keep drudging up what happened to us. We keep bringing it up. In the 18 years I've been the pastor here, there's a couple stories that have stuck in my head. One of them is the story of Kevin Tunnel. Kevin Tunnel was sued by a family for $1.5 million, but they settled out of court for $936 to be paid $1 a week for 18 years. The reason is Kevin Tunnel did something really awful to this family. Kevin went partying with his friends one night. He drank too much. He got behind the wheel of his car. He drove. And he hit and killed the daughter of this family. And so this family said, that's what you're going to do. You're going to pay for what you did. Um, now, Kevin Tunnell, he went to prison. When he got out of prison, he campaigned against drunk driving. But he kept forgetting to mail $1 a week to this family. And he was taken four times to court. And finally, the judge said, dude, what, what's up? What's going on? Why do you keep forgetting? And he finally admitted. He said, you know... Judge, it's not so much that I forget, I'm forgetting, it's that I'm haunted by what I did. 
I, every single week, I'm taken back to my worst moment of my life. Now, I am in no way going to question or minimize that pain that that family went through. But I do want to ask you this question. How many payments do you require from people who hurt you? You know what I mean. The cold shoulder, the silent treatment, the rolling of the eyes, the vindictive words. How much do they have to pay up? When is enough going to be enough? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll, you'll, you'll realize it's just hurting yourself. You're just hurting yourself. You don't win, they don't win, no one wins. This story ends with the consequences of you being unwilling to forgive. There's three consequences. One is the emotional toll. The emotional toll comes in verse 31. It says that they were greatly distressed. Some of you are like, well, yeah, that's just how the world is, unwilling to forgive. Not so quick. Oh, no, 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 not so quick. No. Verse 23, Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like... This is not a story about the world and people who are not in church. This is a story of those of us who are in church. Willing to take God's forgiveness, but unwilling to forgive others. Do I really have to explain the emotional toll? Do I really have to go there? Every time you see this person, every time you think of this person, you know what happens in the, gut, in the pit of your stomach. I don't have to explain it. You know the effect that it has on you. It is not good. It is not healthy. There's relational implications. This guy gets sent to prison, essentially. He used to have a family. No more family relationships. You know, it's interesting. I'm not a counselor. I don't pretend to be, but I've done a lot of reading. It's very interesting what therapists say about this. They say that, for example, if I'm unwilling to forgive my friend Joe here for whatever it is he did, I'm unwilling to forgive him, it doesn't just affect my relationship with him. Therapists will tell you that it's going to affect other relationships as well, even though you have nothing to do with the issue between me and Joe. You go, what do you mean? Well, here, I'm just going to tell you what they say. You begin to hide your true self, you become distrustful of others, you become cynical of the world, and you damage the most valued relationships because you are unwilling to deal with an unhealthy situation in your past. So the people you care about, the people you love, they are being affected because you are unwilling to deal in a healthy manner with what was unhealthy in your past. There's relational implications. And then you think this is bad? The worst is still to come if you're unwilling to forgive. It's the last one. It's the spiritual consequences. Look at verse 35, the conclusion of this story. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Is this saying what I think it's saying? Is this saying that if I'm unwilling to forgive someone, God is unwilling to forgive me? That's exactly what this is saying. Now, I want you to think about living the rest of your life without God's forgiveness. You don't get it. Why not? Because you're unwilling to forgive someone else. I would like to suggest that might be a problem. That might be a problem. Some of you who are readers may know this book right here by Laura Hildebrand called Unbroken. It was at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Um, She wrote Seabiscuit. She's an incredible author. She tells the story in in the book Unbroken about a guy called Louis Zamperini. 
Louis Zamperini grew up in, in New York, was born in New York, eventually moved to Torrance, California. While in Torrance, he started to run in high school, then he ran for USC, and then he eventually he became, became an Olympian and ran in the 1936 Olympics. People were so impressed with his running that Adolf Hitler, after one of his races, requested to meet Louis Zamperini in person. And he met Louis Zamperini. A couple years after the Olympics, as most of our grandfathers and great-grandfathers did, um, Louis Zamperini enlisted um, in, because World War II was going on. And he was commissioned and was part of a bomber group, 11 guys on a bomber. Well, in 1947, he uh, was uh, leaving Oahu, and um, he was about 800 miles from the base. The engines went out, and they crashed into the sea. Eight of the 11 guys on board that plane died, all but Louis Zamperini and two other guys. And for 47 days, they survived on a dinghy at sea. It's still a world record. No one has ever been able to survive that long. And they fought against sharks, and they fought dementia, and they fought dehydration, and they fought hunger. And still, until on day 48, they arrived on Marshall Islands, only to be very quickly captured by the Japanese. Louis Zamperini says that if he thought the 47 days at sea were bad, that nothing compared to the two years of psychological and physical torture that he experienced with this guy right here. Let's put him up on the screen. This guy's name was Wantabi, nicknamed the bird. When the war was over, he was at the top of many war crimes lists for what he did in the prison camps to our men and women. And uh, like I said, his job was to torture American soldiers. Louis Zamperini was declared dead in 1948 by the War Department, which made it quite surprising when he came back to the United States and was released from the prison. He had a hero's welcome as an Olympian and a war soldier, as a war veteran. But by his own words, his life began to spiral out of control, and he became an alcoholic, and his marriage was teetering at the edge of completely being destroyed. But worse yet, Louis Zamperini said, I would wake up every night in sweats after having a nightmare of that man. And he said, I desperately had this desire in my pit of my stomach to kill this man, to murder this man. And he says, one day my wife came to me and said, Louis, our marriage is over. We're done. And he begged with his wife because he deeply loved her. Is there anything I can do? And And she said, well, maybe there's one thing you can do. You can come with me to a rally, to a campaign tonight from a guy called Billy Graham. And that day he went. And he sat and he listened as Billy Graham explained the story of Jesus and what he did on the cross and what the Easter story is all about and how every single one of us, regardless of what we've done and who we've become, having this massive moral debt can come to God and receive forgiveness. And Louis says, he says, I desperately wanted to leave, but something kept me from leaving. And at the end of that message, I walked forward And I embraced the grace of Jesus Christ, and I invited Jesus into my life. He says, Louis says, from that day forward, something happened. I never woke up ever again, ever with another nightmare. My heart started to change. My life started to change to the point that two years later, he decided to go back to Japan, to that very same camp where he had been held captive. Those very men that had had imprisoned him were now in that same camp and he wanted to go back and tell them about the individual Jesus who changed their life. So he went back, desperately wanting to meet the bird again and tell the bird, Wantabi, what Jesus had done for his life. Louis Zamperina says that one of his greatest disappointments was before he could do that, 
the bird committed suicide. And in the book, Laura Hildebrand says this about what Louis experienced. When Louis was told that the bird had committed suicide, Louis felt something he had never felt for his captor before. With a shiver of amazement, he realized it was compassion. At that moment, something shifted sweetly inside him. It was forgiveness. Beautiful and effortless and complete for Louis Zamperini. The war was over. The problem is that for some of us, the war continues. And the war continues very simply because we haven't used this app that God gives us. To seek forgiveness and to offer and give forgiveness. And what I'd like to suggest is why not end the war today? End it today. Let's close in a word of prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to take a moment. We're going to do it differently this morning. I want you to decide what do you feel God talked to you today about. Do you fall more into the category of someone who needs forgiveness? You need God's forgiveness or someone who needs to give forgiveness? You think it through. Do you need to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and ask for the forgiveness of your sins? Or when we were talking about that person that hurts you, someone very clearly came to your mind. What forgiveness are you going to embrace today? Whatever you sense God asking and telling you to do, I want you to encourage you to have that war end today. Ask for God's forgiveness. Or leave that bitterness with you here today. Leave that baggage here today of unforgiveness toward that one individual who has so deeply hurt you. You take a moment, you and God, and then I'll close. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the Easter story and everything that it implies and it represents. We are here today worshiping a Savior who didn't just die on the cross, but rose from the dead, conquering death. And because he did that, it gives every single one of us the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and have a relationship with our King that we don't deserve. Father, we're so incredibly thankful for that. But because of that, there are things that you ask in return. One of them is that we are to show but a fraction of the mercy that you have shown to us. We are to show that to others. Because life is painful and because people are selfish and sinful, they do things that hurt us. But Father, you're calling us to forgive them. Realizing that that relationship doesn't have to go back to normal but realizing that we need to give our pain to you. We need to treat them with respect and and we need to wish them well with God. Father, we are choosing to do that today not because we feel like doing that, but in obedience we are choosing to do that because we know that's the right thing to do. Father, you are a good God. And this Easter story is not just something we celebrate on a Sunday, but it is something we take to our homes, we take back to our schools, We take to our places of employment realizing that Jesus makes a difference. 
We love you, and we thank you so much for what you've taught us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.